Hey, it's Dan here. You're listening to the OK Computer Takeover of the On The Tape feed. Every Wednesday, I co-host a podcast on all things technology, both public and private markets, with a murderer's row of tech investors, former operators, and thought leaders. We will be squarely focused on the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3, whatever that means. And we've already had a couple of great guests like Adam Bain, the former Twitter COO and investor at O1 Advisors, and Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit and investor at 776. So please follow OK Computer in the podcast stores and follow us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Hey, I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with Meltem Demers. This is OK Computer. We got a hot one today. We are going to talk about... Meltem's view about Bitcoin being politicized here with the war in the Ukraine. We're going to talk about Bitcoin censorship resistance and what some U.S. domiciled exchanges may or may not be doing with some Russian accounts there. We're also going to talk about this big executive order that is going to come out later this week that President Biden Tomorrow. is going to be signing. Okay, there you Tomorrow. go. That's going to be hot. And then obviously, uh, Mark Andreessen on Twitter, he doesn't tweet a whole heck of a lot, but he had a brilliant tweet that on ESG and that Elon Musk responded to, then you retweeted uh, with an emoji. And you're going to have to tell me yep. what's going on there. And then we may get into... We're going to talk about stonks. Stonks. Your we're going to do stonks. All right. So we're going to... Well, Visit my world, then your world. Let's do it. I saw you on I saw you on Bloomberg. I, I didn't see you on Bloomberg. I saw your clip that was on Bloomberg that you retweeted, and then you had a tweet thread on it. And you are amazingly articulate. I will say this before we get into this. Some of the responses, Amanda and I, we get emails, we get tweets, we get a lot of stuff. And they're like, why do you let Meltem just walk all over you? I hear that a lot, don't I, Amanda? I think I do. And it goes back to, I think, our first podcast recording, which was a little more than a year Oh, the ago. Battle of the Boomers. Yes. And you put me in my place over Doge, just so you know. Because remember I said to you, Doge is not real. And you're like, Dan, what is real? And it got really kind of- Rivian is real. And that's- Real-ish. Also, Doge. Nicola was real, and yeah. that's Doge also. Yeah, it is. But I think we've learned a lot since then because you think at that time, and I think we were probably talking a little bit about the Beeple NFT thing had just happened, and everyone had it in their mind that $69 million pieces of digital art was going to be this was going to be a moment in time for the whole crypto. And it really wasn't. When you look at it, and I think you and I have talked about it on the pod, if you look at the explosion of NFT, volume in almost every exchange. It dwarfs the Beeple sale and it actually is in a trajectory that we'll see if that maintains the course. Look, at the end of the day, I think one of the interesting things that's happened over the last really 24 months, it's now March of 2022, March of 2020. 
is when this shit show started. Excuse my language. Just reflecting on this today, we've been locked inside our houses for the last 24 months and we've been on the internet. Yeah. And what do you do when you're locked in your house? You don't have anything to do. You can't go out. You can't hang out with your friends. What do you do? You hang out on the internet. You do weird shit with your internet friends. And one of those things became Wall Street. People were like, wait a minute. I want to be a banker. What's really interesting for me is monetary policy and economics entered the national zeitgeist. Never before in pop culture history has there been a moment like this where people were making money printer memes. People were talking about inflation. Like you had pop culture podcasters talking to massive audiences of tens of millions of people, followers, whoever, about macroeconomic policy. So I think it was just a fundamental shift in the way that we view investing. And investing is not only entertainment, but it is an expression of, of your beliefs and your views on the world. Yeah. But isn't it interesting, though, in the last, let's call it year and a half or so, it went from the origination of Bitcoin with the white paper 13 years ago as a response to the money printing and what happened during the financial crisis to in the throes of this COVID lockdown that we had back in February, March, April of 2020, Bitcoin was dead on its ass. Everything was dead. Dan. Right. No doubt about it. But what I'm saying is it was supposed to do the opposite thing in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, but that's the issue of time scale. Yeah. And you correct me on that all the time. You forget, I'm the fast money guy. You are. You like everything fast. But we move slow, right? And you have to remember, change takes a really long time. Because what we're talking about is changing your mind is a really slow process. It took me a long time to change my mind on certain things. Sometimes you just have to get punched in the face repeatedly for you to actually get it. And I think that's happening now. Ken Griffin this week said he was wrong about Bitcoin. He did. I mean, listen, I think they're all going to say it because forget Bitcoin. I don't think it's about Bitcoin to me. I'm waiting for Jamie Dimon to come out and say. Oh, he will. He absolutely will. He's in the business of making money. There's a whole lot of money in crypto. Yeah, but I think that's like the forest from the trees in a way. It's like, you know, we could sit here and debate at this time, Bitcoin at 38,000. It was 45,000 last week and it was 35,000 two weeks. 69,000 at its peak. Back in November. Exactly. And I know you love that number. But my point is not a whole heck of a lot has happened in the last two years. Now, Bitcoin was below 5,000 at the throes of that thing. Yeah, it went as low as 3,000. Okay. And so, you know what was working back then? Gold was working back then. And gold, I know, I know this is crazy. And I'm not a gold bug. I hate gold. I think it's the dumbest fucking thing on the planet. I wish everyone could see my face right now. You know what? Nickel's also goodbye right now. Nickel's done okay. You're going to go out and get some nickel? How about some, get yourself some uranium? You've heard me say this. I guarantee you've heard me say this. I've said it on all our podcasasts. Every dog has its day, Dan. If, if you were there looking for that inflation hedge, that gold proxy or whatever, I don't know why anyone with the right mind wouldn't buy digital gold. But Bitcoin's not digital gold. Gold is a dog, first of all. Ten-year performance on gold is what? Flat. 2010, at its highs, gold went to 2000. It just crossed 2000 this week. Gold is a dog. Bitcoin's not digital gold. Bitcoin is so much more. It's a new protocol. It's a new network. It's a new medium of exchange. The other cool thing is like Bitcoin is reconceptualizing what market structure looks like. So there's this interesting idea that's existed for a long time. And I've been evolving my thinking on this, which has been an interesting process. But there used to be this view that crypto was going to get institutionalized and existing financial institutions would integrate crypto and they would help build the connectivity between my world, this crazy crypto world with its own market structure, its own rules, its own contracts, right? And bring it into the legacy world. I am now more convinced than ever that that is never fucking going to happen because they're simply incapable of doing that. What's actually going to happen is crypto is going to consume all markets because it's much easier to take an existing 
product or contract and conceptualize it on a public network that has a single execution layer, a single settlement layer, that's much easier to do than to try to take this archaic system of COBOL databases that are strung together by silly putty and duct tape and try to figure out how that's going to innovate. So I actually think the flow is going to go the other way. And the reason that becomes interesting, and this is where Citadel is going to get into crypto, Virtu, KCG, all of these companies, market makers, are going to get into crypto. Why? Because the idea that we can suddenly have a single global market where assets are traded 24-7, 365, and settle on a global network that is censorship resistant. The network is censorship resistant. The companies and the applications aren't. They're subject to rules and laws. But protocols and networks themselves, they're not regulating govern the same way that companies are. That's absurd concept that somehow lawmakers like just can't, their skull is like incapable of receiving that information. But would it help? Because I remember a few years ago, the whole idea of enterprise blockchains. Would that help if you saw some major multinationals use them among their networks? There's never going to be an enterprise blockchain. Really? There's no point in having a blockchain unless you're doing things that are worth securing. What the issue is, what the core issue is, is consensus, which is the process that happens in a distributed fashion on these public blockchain networks. The act of creating secure, verifiable consensus is expensive. Whether you do that with electricity and computation, which is what proof of work is, whether you do that with capital, which is what proof of stake is, whether you do that with storage and disk space, which is what proof of space and time is, it has to be expensive to create consensus. Otherwise, the network will be attacked and subverted. And so I think the issue that people don't realize is if you create an enterprise blockchain that is distributed, decentralized, and secure, you're going to spend a ton of money on transactions. Nobody is willing to spend $10 to make sure their salad is secure, number one. And number two, that's not a real problem that you need a blockchain for. You just need a database. It's a database problem. So just use a a database. So this whole concept of enterprise blockchain, I think, is foolish in a way because it's not about creating a better database. This is about fundamentally rethinking what we're willing to pay for distributed consensus and settlement guarantees. That's what we're doing. No, that makes sense. I mean, this is the part where I think my trolls are saying, well, you got to push back and you're just much smarter than me on this. But, but what are we pushing back on? Nothing. That's how the technology works. Like, yeah. if you'd like me to do a deep technical yeah. dive on this. No. I'm sure there's a lecture somewhere that I've done. I'm sure you've written, like, volumes for coin shares on that. All right. Let's talk about, though, the politicalization of Bitcoin in the last couple of weeks. So we talked a couple of weeks ago. The war had just started. It started with the Canadian trucker protests, oh, if you recall. Right. That's if, what we were talking about. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. really where it started, right? Man, you were pissed. You were like as pissed as those truckers, but you actually knew what you were mad about. What were they mad about? Here's the issue I have. So we live in a world where We've never really had to think about money. How often do you use cash? Like Rarely. Rarely, right? You have a credit card, you swipe it, you have your little Apple Pay, and like, you go through, you flow through your life. And most people who listen to this podcast, by the way, operate like, you flow through your life, you like swipe your little card, a little device, whatever, throw some cash places, you go to ATM, you get cash. It all works. What happened in Canada is the government wanted a specific group of people to be vaccinated so they could go to work. But those people didn't want to be vaccinated. And like, look, I'm not getting into We're not doing that on OK Computer. Nope. The issue is what the Canadian government decided to do, the OSJ decided to do, is, hey, here's a really great way that we can get people to do what we want. Let's exclude them from financial system, which, by the way, is something we've been doing as the United States of America for the last 
one century. Right. You call it financial violence. Yeah. Sanctions, financial exclusion, redlining, right? If you live in a certain district, you can't get a loan. If you're a certain type of person, like you can't open a bank account. So I think what's really interesting is people have this concept that money is a right that they have. You don't have any right to your money. The minute that you become a PEP, a politically exposed person, the minute you get put on an OFAC list, and it could be for something totally benign. It could be a mistake. You lose all access to the financial system. Your credit card doesn't work. Your ATM card doesn't work. You can't do anything. And what's really interesting is, is in the Canada case, it wasn't just the truckers that were protesting. It was people who attended the protests. It was a coffee shop that was doing its business and serving people coffee. They were excluded from the financial system just unilaterally. But I got to push back here. So you didn't mention my haircut. I know it looks great. It does look so great. So this morning- Did you I, put some gel in there? A little bit. I have a little something. The guy who cut my hair, a guy named Eddie, he's a Russian. He left Russia in 1989. They still have some family there. And he's obviously very disappointed with what's going on there. And they send his aunt some money each month. They can't send the aunt money this month. He's into crypto, just so you know. I mean, he talks to me about all this crazy shit that he's doing and everything like that. I want to introduce him to you. <laughs> I would love to talk to your barber. Great guy. But he says to me, I can't convince my 70-year-old aunt about Bitcoin. Does Bitcoin solve the problem in a war where some of this stuff is happening? Okay, so let me just interject here for a moment. Okay, so the comment around the politicization of Bitcoin is this. Elizabeth Warren and a few other Democratic senators have taken it upon themselves to propagate this narrative that cryptocurrency is being used to evade sanctions, which even if it were a very small scale, do you know how much the U.S. banking sector is used to evade sanctions? To the tune of trillions of dollars per year in transaction volumes. And I think the other issue is there seems to be this fundamental confusion, and I'm not sure if it's ignorance or if it's deliberate malice that is contributing to this, but there is a deliberate conflation of Bitcoin, the protocol, which is code. You can't govern code. A piece of code cannot censor. It does not have the capability to do anything other than the function which it was programmed to do, which all Bitcoin is programmed to do is to facilitate transactions. There's nothing else going on there. There's no KYC amount that happens at the application level. So if you have a company that is providing a service that is domiciled in the United States of America, which many crypto companies are domiciled in the United States of America, those companies have been complying with sanctions, with OFAC rules, with KYC AML requirements, with every rule that applies to financial institutions for the last seven years plus now. But isn't that regulating Bitcoin? No, it's regulating Bitcoin companies. If you think about it, for most people, the on-ramp to crypto is these centralized platforms like Coinbase just blocked 25,000 crypto wallets based on some of the sanctions, right? Which, by the way, is what they should do. And here's the issue I have. On the flip side, you have a bunch of Bitcoin people and crypto people on the internet who are like, this is not decentralized. And I'm like, right, because if you're a company that operates in the United States of America and you have known executives, not only do you face company liabilities, and they're civil and criminal, you are personally also liable. Now, note that not a single banker has gone to jail for evading sanctions. Not a single bank has let any of its executives go to jail for facilitating trillions of dollars of sanctions violations. But if you're the executive of a crypto company, you're not going to take that level of risk. Now, what those people can do, if you're blocked by one of these platforms, you can use a non-custodial application. So you could use a non-custodial wallet 
That is a piece of software. It's typically open source licensed, and you can try to manage your own crypto. Now, the issue is at some point, if you're a billionaire and you want to evade sanctions, your jet, the fuel, has to be paid for in U.S. dollars. Your yacht, the fuel gets paid for in U.S. dollars. Your crew gets paid in dollars. So if you want to actually use crypto and Bitcoin specifically as a tool to evade sanctions, the amount of money, cash you can move through the system is actually very limited because at some point you have to touch a financial institution that deals in dollars. And the ability to move, maybe you could move a million dollars, maybe you do 10, you can't do billions. I get that. And I guess the point that I would say, people used to say before Bitcoin existed, good luck trying to lug around your gold nuggets in World War III. And then the other way to think about it is, look what Russia's about to do here, basically turn off the internet. And their own people, and they've seen the ruble just go to zero for all intents and purposes. And so what good is it if you have a thumb drive with some crypto on it, if you're trying to get your Smirnoff or, or potatoes or wheat or, you know, you know what I mean? Here's where I think the narrative gets confused. So Bitcoin is 13 years old as an idea. It's 13 years old as a network as well. Here's the issue I take with this narrative. So Bitcoin in and of itself as an asset, the only promise that Bitcoin is making is self-sovereignty. It's not promising that you can move billions of dollars unsurveilled through the financial system. It's not making those promises. So I feel like there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what people believe Bitcoin can do. And I think, again, even for people who are living in regimes where they are worried about rapid inflation, where they're worried about monetary debasement, or potentially living in totalitarian regimes where they have zero autonomy, what Bitcoin provides isn't a way to evade financial rules. What Bitcoin provides is a choice. For the first time in my life, I don't just have to choose between U.S. dollars, my sovereign currency. I get to choose a third alternative, which is this thing called Bitcoin, or name any cryptocurrency. But look, I think that choice is really powerful. And then not only do you have that choice, you have all of these like tools and infrastructures decentralized that you can use to get a loan using that Bitcoin as collateral. And maybe you can't get that loan in dollars, but like you can use it to invest in other assets. So I think there is this interesting sort of issue where a lot of people believe the value proposition of Bitcoin's breaking financial laws, and it isn't. The real opportunity for Bitcoin right now is giving people who've never had a choice a choice. And by the way, 22% of American adults have exercised that choice by choosing to hold Bitcoin. 22% of American adults own Bitcoin. Why? Because they want their fucking choice. FOMO, yeah, FOMO whatever it is, right? FOMO. It's funny. I've told you the story about my 18-year-old daughter who had some cash in her PayPal account from working. And underneath it says, buy crypto, question mark. And yeah. she's 18. And part of my view with her is, listen, this is an asymmetric sort of thing to invest in. And I will tell you, think about your life when you were 18, not so long ago, just a few years ago, but there weren't too many sort of things that actually had a common sense logic, right, to why they might appreciate that have asymmetric sort of upside. But I think when I was 18, it was a long time ago because I'm in my mid-30s now, there was no way for me to even easily open a brokerage account. That's right. Right. And now what's so cool is you can easily open a brokerage account on your mobile phone. I don't even have to leave my house. I don't have to go anywhere. I can just pull out my phone, upload some information, upload like my ID and whatever else. Listen, our sponsor, Current, our presenting sponsor, you know, this guy's Stuart Stop, And Stuart's a total stud. And you got to listen. I had an interview right here in this room with him a couple weeks ago about how he was an FX trader at Morgan Stanley. This is like in 2012. 
and his co-founder, um, Trevor, gave him the Bitcoin white paper. He said it changed everything he thought about, everything that he did and everything like that. You got to listen to that interview, guys. That was from a couple weeks ago. But I think the thing is, right, like I was in school. I was studying finance and econ, math major, and – here I am, I'm pricing options, but I've never actually traded an option. So I went my junior and senior year and I worked at a trading desk where I actually got to like punch the keyboard and run all my little models, right? I'd go in at six in the morning, I'd run my little models, I'd give them to the traders and they'd trade that strategy. But it's like, now anyone can do that. I think that's super cool. But again, I think with the politicization of Bitcoin, what makes me really frustrated, again, is there's this narrative that's so persistent out there that somehow crypto is being used, even though it's a very tiny asset class compared to the overall capital market, that somehow crypto is the big bad wolf in the room that's just going to enable trillions of dollars of financial crime coming out of Russia. And I'm like, that is just so... I don't know if it's crime, but think about what happened with China and the banning of... But it was more about capital flight. So to me, that's not criminal. I mean, it's criminal relative to what that totalitarian regime is implementing on their own people. And that was the thing that I want to go back. So we talked about the Canadian truckers. I'm sure they're a nice bunch. On the Canadian truckers, I have no dog in this fight. What I think the issue is, is when a government unilaterally chooses to exclude people from the financial system, that starts to become problematic because money is speech. Before we move on from that tweet thread, the picture that Bloomberg cut of you for the thing that they tweeted out, this is a meme. It's like sad Meltem. No, that's Meltem being like, the fuck are you saying? All right, Amanda, you got to get that. We got to turn that into a meme. That's sad Meltem, you know, like crying Jordan. You're the meme queen. This is like my, what, what are you saying? I have a hard time controlling my face. A lot of times people are like, why is your face like that? And I'm like, yeah. it's my face. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. It's attached to my body. You're doing great. <laughs> You're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> Let's put a bow on this conversation here because, listen, I feel like 2022, we're so beyond Bitcoin targets. You know what I'm saying? Like, that felt like so 2020, 2021 Honestly, the issue I have is, like, if you wanted to do something about crypto, and this actually leads directly into this Biden executive order that's supposedly All right, let's talk about coming that. out. Okay, here's the interesting thing. So you've had literally nine years of crypto companies and crypto people going to Washington, D.C., trying to engage with you, the SEC, the IRS, the FBI, like intelligence community, White House, various branches of the administration. You have literally had our entire industry on this pilgrimage to D.C. for the last nine years, coming to try to talk to you about what we're doing, what we're building, trying to get clarity on policy. And nothing has been done other than, hey, just comply with the rules as they're written. Which is like, okay, if that's what we're going to do, great, we're going to do that. Now, all of a sudden, this is a $2 trillion industry if we look at just the market cap of crypto. It's a much bigger industry if you look at the amount of venture capital companies, their market caps. What do you think that is outside of just if I go to coin market cap and I see it's about a little less than $2 trillion. What do you think the ecosystem is? as private capital and everything. Publicly listed companies, $100 billion, based on what we last yeah. tracked. SPACs, $32 billion. So those are companies that are yet to go public, as well as SPAC groups that have not yet found targets. If you look at the private venture market, last year there was $36 billion deployed into crypto companies out of like the total of $600 billion. What about DAOs? Not that huge yet, but protocol treasuries themselves really large. So protocol treasuries probably control at least another... Hundred and fifty to two hundred billion. Overall, like my thesis is, in the next ten years, this will be a hundred trillion dollar asset class. It will be as big as global equities. Wow, fifty, sixty, seventy x from where it is right now. You're saying generally? Yeah. Wow. 
Well, if, if today it's two trillion, let's say all the infrastructure NFTs adds another trillion, let's say three, so that's a thirty x. Global equities today are one hundred and six trillion on a global basis. Did you ever think equities would be as big as they are? Did you think we'd have multi-trillion dollar market well, cap companies? Craziest thing is I remember the first time Apple crossed a half a trillion and then a trillion. It just started skipping higher. So the global equities market has done a 7x in the last 10 years, roughly. So crypto doing a 30 isn't wild. No, it's not wild when you consider the reasons. One of the main reasons that I believe that equities have done what they have is because if you look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield from 20, 30 years, it's upper left, bottom right. It literally went to zero. It's a line straight down. No, I mean, literally, it's this. And the reason why Bitcoin was invented is because of that. And that's never going to change. And when you think about every crisis we have here, one of the things, and we're going to talk about the global macro environment a little bit, but we have essentially negative real interest rates right now, despite the fact that interest rates have gone up precipitously in a short period of time, right? Right. So you have this industry that's been parading through D.C. and trying for years and years to get the attention of lawmakers. And all of a sudden, administrations looking around, lawmakers are looking around, and they're like, oh, this is actually really big. Like, this is a thing. And it's potentially destabilizing. Because you have to remember, the U.S. has long enjoyed its status as the world's hegemon, the predominant power. Now, I am long America. I am long the United States. I am long the American spirit. I'm an immigrant to this country. I've lived here for 25 years. I absolutely love it. But the current political system, our institutions are crumbling. They are ineffective and they're just a disaster. Like many of our public institutions are just in a state of complete disarray and they are not effective in achieving their intended goal. And so I think as the government is looking at what's happening with crypto, they're looking at the fact that all of these young people are really into crypto. People are like leaving the labor market en masse, making money in crypto and just staying in crypto. Do you think they're smart enough to really get that? Go to Elizabeth Warren's Twitter. I'm not making any comments on Elizabeth Warren. Just go to her Twitter. Look at her tweets. She did some tweet like two months ago that was like, oh, the reason prices at the grocery store are going up is because corporations are greedy. She got ratioed hard on that one. The entire comment thread is Bitcoin people. If you're a sitting politician and whenever you tweet about economic policy, it's all crazy crypto people being like, that's not how the monetary system works. That's a problem. So you're saying they get it better than the people that are in charge of stuff. Back to your point about time, we're going to have some serious candidates running for office, whether it be Congress, whether it be Senate, who really get this sort of stuff. And I think you're an MIT gal. I know a lot of people were really excited about Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, when he came in. They thought that he got this, and he doesn't get it. It doesn't appear. Gary Gensler gets it. But what Gary Gensler wants, like, he doesn't care about crypto. He cares about Gary Gensler. Oh, okay. And he cares about the SEC having more power, having a bigger budget, because that's good for Gary Gensler. And that's not a judgment. I think a lot of people who get into politics, they like playing that very specific type of game. I don't have much patience for it. But his objective to me, like he gets crypto. He really understands it. But his objective isn't to help the crypto industry. His objective is to figure out what's best for Gary. Which, again, is totally fine. It's not a criticism. Okay, Biden executive order. Here's what it is. It's going to be, I don't think anything concrete quite yet. First of all, you can't blanket ban 
any and all Russians from engaging with crypto. You don't have the ability to do that. And also, we've been doing sanctions for a while, like punishing ordinary Russians who are also suffering because of this conflict that Putin has started. I don't know if that's the right strategy. But today, there's no blanket ban on Russians buying, selling, trading cryptocurrency, just like there isn't a blanket ban on Ukrainians doing that or Americans or Canadians doing that. If and when that moment comes, crypto companies will do whatever is necessary. But right now, there is no blanket ban on Russian citizens using cryptocurrency. There just isn't. And that's a simple fact. Number two, what the Biden administration, I think, is going to come out with, and we'll see if I'm proven wrong or right, is an order for vital organizations that impact the U.S. economy, i.e. Treasury, Fed, SEC, et cetera. IRS, I'm sure, will be a big part of it because they got to make some money. They are broke as a joke. They need some cash, and they're going to go after the crypto people. It's going to be an order to study and to come up with some concrete recommendations. And we've been doing this for years and years, right? If you recall, like, the Trump administration came out, and they were like, we're going to study the cryptocurrencies and the Bitcoin. And, like, Mnuchin came out, and he's like, we're going to study Bitcoins and make sure that they comply. So it's going to be more studies. You know that he's opening a digital asset fund anytime. One, two, three. Mnuchin, digital assets, yeah. Of course he is. So I think it's going to be just an order for these organizations to actually get their shit together. And here's why I feel bad, because like the crypto market's not as big as other parts of our financial system. In terms of all of the things that are overseen by financial regulators, crypto is a small blip. It's really interesting to me how much it gets blown out of proportion. And that's what irks me. Let's talk about the student debt market. This is a multi-trillion dollar market that actively is harming the lives of so many Americans, yet you're not really doing anything. Like, let's look at that. But they are forgiving some student debt, the Biden administration. I'm sure they will. As we get closer to election season, they need the millennial vote. I have no comments on that. I'm saying they should for political reasons. They will. They're going to do more helicopter money. Another build back better thing. They're going to drop more money in people's bank accounts. And people are going to be excited about it, not realizing that it's coming out of their tax bill. Dumbest thing I've ever seen. But is the executive order on crypto, is it really about Russia? Is it about some FUD over there with Putin and that sort of thing or or no? I think a big focus is going to be sanctions and financial crime. So it's going to be, hey, we need to get a better understanding of what's going on here. And that's the letter apparently Elizabeth Warren and some other Democrats are writing. It's going to be about taxes as well. There's this persistent belief out there that there's a huge amount of tax evasion happening in crypto, like just monumental. So it's going to be about that. It's also going to be, I think there is is going to be commentary around a central bank digital currency, so digitizing the U.S. dollar. And then I think there's also going to be commentary around tokens, securities laws, etc. And then the big prize, the big prize that everyone is gunning for, is decentralized platforms and protocols. Are developers responsible for the open source code they write? Big landmark cases around that in the 90s, in the 2000s. And the Earn It bill, by the way, is back on the floor of Congress. It's the most abominable piece of regulation ever written under the guise of protecting children on the Internet. It attempts to repeal Section 230, which is the right to free speech on the Internet. And it also attempts to roll back private citizen use of end-to-end encryption. It aims to make encryption of Internet traffic in the United States of America no longer legal for private citizens, which, again, is a huge blow to privacy and the crypto sector. I think I want to send this recording to Chuck Todd, I think you'd be a phenomenal Meet the Press guest for like a Sunday morning. You know that show, Meet the Press? I don't. You don't know the show, Meet the Press? I don't really watch TV. I don't have cable. All right. Listen, when we come back, we're going to get to a Mark Andreessen tweet, and we're going to talk about the broad markets away from crypto. So stick around. 
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Let's hit this Mark Andreessen tweet. So this morning, Mark Andreessen, who's not an he used to be a very active tweeter, and then he stopped. I think something happened. He commented on something about India or something. This was like a couple years ago. Yeah, he got ratioed. He got ratioed. Explain to people what ratioing is. You put a tweet out, and then your responses are much greater than the likes or retweets. That's being ratioed. That means that you just infuriated an audience. Is that it? Exactly. Getting ratioed is you tweet something, and it gets more comments than it gets likes, or people's replies to it gets more likes. It's generally not good. If people are willing just to do more than just hit the like button, that means they're, they're Yeah, active. it means you made people mad. So this one wasn't ratio tweet. I don't know, Mark. He's a storied venture capitalist, and I think he's widely thought of as one of those brilliant people. Creator of one of the first internet browsers. That's right. But he's also the guy who said software is eating the world. And I actually think, and that was probably about 10 years ago when you think about that. And I think that has probably been a bit of a mantra, if you will, for the crypto community. And let's also not forget Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z now, was the first venture firm actually to build its own propaganda arm. They have a huge media organization. They create a ton Is that what of you call content. It propaganda. Yeah, I, mean, I think people view propaganda as having a negative connotation. I'm yeah. saying propaganda in like the context of Bernays. They want to control their own media narrative. Exactly right. It's just they've they've been very deliberate around how they build a narrative around the tech they're investing in. I think it's really smart. Yeah, and they're really good. I mean, Chris Dixon, who who led up or still leads, he leads their A16Z crypto fund, I guess, and they're probably on their second or third one or whatever, and they've raised billions of dollars. And there's some of the earliest investors and in some of the biggest platforms out there. I look at people like him and you and Packy, and I don't know Chris, but I read his stuff. And when I read those threads, like why Web3 matters, he literally in like 30 tweets educates you whether you agree or disagree. That's it. That's the gold standard of it. And then people iterate on that. All right. So here's Mark Andreessen's tweet from this morning. He was, quote, tweeting an article that he must have read. It was a city analyst, city bank. We believe defense is likely to be increasing seen as a necessity that facilitates ESG as an enterprise, as well as maintaining peace, stability, and other goals. This is the analyst writes, recent events in Europe we think will significantly increase the likelihood of defense's inclusion in the EU's social taxonomy. So then Mark quote tweets that, the plan, ESG funds will invest in defense companies to make the weapons required to fight wars with hostile regimes we buy energy from because ESG funds won't invest in energy companies. And then Elon Musk responds, ESG rules have been twisted in insanity. And then 
Meltem Demirs comes over the top, quote tweets the whole mess, and just puts a clown face emoji with the world. What are you saying here? Clown world. We live in clown world. Clown central. And the thing here is, it's like, it would be so funny if it wasn't so profoundly terrifying. Here's a question for you, Dan. Who is the single largest polluter on this planet? The single largest polluter on this planet is one organization. Name it. I was going to say China. It's not China. What is it? China's a country. This is one organization. Who is it? I have no idea. The U.S. military. We're not even accounting, by the way, for all of the negative externalities that decades of ecological warfare have brought. Mass scale destruction of huge swaths of rainforest. How does Bitcoin fix this? It doesn't fix this. There's nothing to do with Bitcoin. I was just curious. Trying to get y'all worked up. No, no, no. I'm, what I get worked up about is this. And I used to work in oil and gas. Yes. And I meet all these people, right, who are like, we just need to move off of fossil fuels. And I'm like, you are so dumb. You are so, so, so dumb. You go through life, 95% of everything you interact with is made out of petrochemicals. It is made out of natural gas and oil. Plastic made out of natural gas One and word, oil. Plastics. Exactly. My dad makes plastics for a living. He creates food-grade plastics. Guess what they're made out of? Natural gas and oil. Your food Guess what fertilizer is made out of? Yeah, shit. Guess what, like, everything you interact with is made out of. Guess how all of the cheap shit you buy at Walmart and on Amazon, guess how it gets to America? On a ship that burns oil. Yeah. It's so, so, so dumb. But use paper straws. It is clown central. What do you say to this younger generation who's grown up thinking we have to be off this stuff? I have young daughters and I think they generally agree with the narrative when they see like a meme with like an oil slick. Yeah, because clicking like on a meme. Okay, but do you know how shit actually gets? And this is the issue I have. People go off about energy and energy use of fossil fuels all the time. Do you know how the global economy functions? Do you know how your computer works? Most people have no idea. They believe the internet's like generated in the ether and that Netflix uses like magical fairy dust. No! Data centers consume an insane amount of energy. Streaming your favorite show consumes an insane amount of energy. Using the internet to tweet about how mad you are about fossil fuels, guess what? You probably burned like a gallon of oil. It's so preposterous to me because the supposition is that we have some sort of morality contest or purity test that we have to pass where we use no resources. Everything we do uses resources, Dan. Everything we do. So if you want to consume no fossil fuels, guess what? Go live in the woods by yourself. You will buy no food at a grocery store. You will never travel. You will never drive a car. You will never use the internet. You will never use a phone. So my response to people who say that shit is I'm like, hey, great. If you want to burn no fossil fuels, Here's what you should do. That's how you burn no fossil fuels. And they're like, yeah, 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 but renewable energy. Here's the issue with renewable energy. Here's the issue I have. What are the raw material inputs to require to make renewable energy batteries, wind turbines, et cetera? It's lithium, which is produced in conflict-prone regions. It is a bunch of rare earth metals that are mined by child slaves in the Congo. So that's not very green either. And then the last issue I have is this. While we've been busy bitching about plastic straws, guess what Russia and China have been doing? 
Those two countries between them have put more renewables and more nuclear energy on the grid than any other country. So while we were busy bitching about ESG in the West, China made 10% of its power mix renewables. It's now at 20%, actually 30% almost, I think. The U.S. is at like 18%. And so what really drives me crazy is we've totally lost the plot. I want to push back for one second. Those are both totalitarian regimes. That's the point. And so they can do and they can use their resources how they want to and dictate to their people about it. I mean, like, if you're telling me that they're at 30%, we're 20%, and we have, I think for the most part, a pretty free society, that's not a bad trade. Right, but then don't complain to me about ESG. The thing that's actually crazy is this. So you have these funds with ESG mandates, and Europe's now trying to push broad-based ESG mandates on all companies. In Europe, they want to introduce like a new ESG score. BlackRock wants to create some ESG score. And if you don't do what Daddy Fink says with your ESG, then BlackRock's not going to buy your stonks. It's a problem. What's really crazy to me is the criteria for ESG make no sense. The idea that the U.S. military, which is one of the best-funded organizations, what's our defense budget? We have a direct budget of, I think, close to trillion dollars. And then the amount of money that goes to military contractors, I think last year we were at around $400 billion of taxpayer dollars that went to Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and a bunch of other defense contractors who make better bombs and rockets. Those stonks are doing well right now. Yeah, so we can kill people without having to leave our country. What I think is really interesting is that somehow is going to be ESG because we live in clown world. Yeah. It's just, it's completely nonsense. I think, Meltem, you should run for something. I really do. I don't want to. I feel to. like you have a lot of energy that could be used in kind of demystifying a lot of the bullshit that exists in our political environment. Dan, I'm going to write a book. It's yeah. going to be a very research-driven book around the future of energy and computation and cryptocurrency. Because I think what people don't understand, right, we want to live in this, like, cool techno-futuristic society. What are the three primary inputs for this going to be? Number one, energy. I'm talking fossil fuels. I'm talking nuclear. I'm talking renewables. But we need a shitload of energy. There is a nuclear reactor in our sky called the sun. We are going to need a lot of energy, and we're going to need cheap, abundant energy, and we're going to use we're going to use. It. Is there any Bitcoin anywhere in the world being mined on nuclear energy? Soon there will be. Compass Mining in Oklo, which is a small-scale nuclear reactor startup that is in late stages of trials, they're going to deploy these things called powerhouses that are co-located with Bitcoin mining that's containerized. Yeah. Those two coupled together will create this mini self-sustaining power plant that pays for itself with the Bitcoin it mines. That's pretty cool. The second input that we'll need is compute and connectivity. So compute is CPUs, GPUs, chips, semiconductors, a lot of really cool technical breakthroughs. But guess what you need to make chips? A lot of raw materials, a lot of energy, right? It's very energy intensive. And then in terms of connectivity, what we need is more telecommunications connectivity. 97% of the world's telecommunications still flow through cable. Satellites starting to take up more of that. But guess how you get a satellite into the sky? A lot of energy. Okay, thank you very much. And then the last component that sort of underpins all of this, the global medium of exchange that will power all of this, that will connect all of these networks, enable rapid payments that are purely digital in nature, is cryptocurrencies. These three really, in my view, this is like my next hundred year investment thesis. 
Let's talk about stonks, though. Call them stocks. You call them stonks. Commodities are having a moment. Yeah. So I've been in the stock market for 25 years, and I started out, it was the Asian debt crisis in 97, the Russian debt crisis in 98, and then it was- And again in 2022, redux. I think the GDP of Russia is five or six X of what it was in 1998, and the interconnectivity and the reliance on Europe on their energy resources is much bigger now. And it's really interesting to- to me, and I think if you're thinking about stocks and the stock market generally, if you're looking at all this stuff that's going on, let's just talk about this. So the U.S. Federal Reserve and global central banks were already moving to tighten monetary policy after unusually dovish policy during the pandemic. Yeah, we got real loose with it. We got loose with it. The fact that literally a few months ago they were buying $120 billion of bonds a month, $80 billion in treasuries and 40 and mortgage backed securities given the housing environment that we just seen was like absolutely insane. And Don't worry about it. People weren't worrying about it. You know why? they weren't worrying about it, Meltem, because stocks were going higher. We also live in clown world. We live in clown world. So at the end of the day, we saw interest rates since they changed their tune about inflation, that it wasn't going to be transitory, which they were sticking with for the better part of 2021. They said they're going to raise interest rates. Bond markets started to believe them. Short end of the rates started going higher. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield went to 2% just a couple weeks ago. But then this war started, and we saw oil that was already moving higher for the expected demand increase with the endemic and the reflation trade globally. So we saw some commodities moving higher. We saw materials and stuff moving higher. We saw interest rates moving higher. We saw the U.S. dollar moving higher, okay, which is really interesting. Most stocks hadn't reacted. We saw lots of high-growth stocks over the last year, and you've seen this. And the NASDAQ, dozens and dozens and dozens of them are down 50 60 70%. But what hadn't moved lower yet were some of the bigger names, Apple, the Microsoft, Google, and the Amazon, which made up just a couple weeks ago maybe $8 trillion in market cap. So more than 20% of the S&P 500 was keeping that levitating. So stocks all of a sudden started reacting to the fact that the Fed is really going to battle inflation. They're not going to take their foot off the taper and increase the hawkish stance. And that's really going to push maybe our economy into a recession with all these commodities that are really high. We're seeing inflation everywhere. Dan, don't forget, the reason that prices are going up is because corporations are greedy. No doubt about it. This goes back to 2017. You take the Trump tax cut, it was a trillion and a half dollars. You know how much U.S. corporations bought back in their stock over the next two years, their own stock, public companies? One and a half trillion dollars. So they basically cut the corporate tax rate from what, 28% to 21%. They basically handed them a trillion and a half dollars. And what did they do? They bought back their own stock. Interest rates were still really low. Right. And so wages at that point were really low, too, if you think about it. I mean, we've seen big wage increases. So corporations were having record gross margins, record profits. And then all of a sudden we have this black swan event, the pandemic. And then what does the Fed do? They go back to their crisis playbook. They put interest rates at zero and they start flooding the zone. So I give them credit from the standpoint is I can't tell you that policy made a lot of sense of like shutting down businesses and schools and all that sort of stuff. I mean, for the extended period, maybe it was a couple weeks or so. And at the time, we thought a couple weeks, a couple months. And what are they going to do? They're going to make sure that people don't go bankrupt. Corporates don't go bankrupt. We don't have a credit event. Well, they're going to make sure corporates don't go bankrupt. I think it did crush small businesses, small business owners, which still comprise a huge percent of the U.S. economy. Yeah, but a lot of them got a lot of money. Maybe they did. And then they moved into the stock market or crypto. I mean that sincerely. I didn't know how to do PPP. I don't think I, I qualified. I also didn't need it. But a lot of people who didn't need it 
did the PPP thing and got a lot of cash. I know. And I think it's kind of shitty and I think the people should return it. I know a lot of people who have cash just sitting in their bank accounts from it and they your businesses ended up booming for the most part and they didn't need it. So I guess with stocks right here, I would just say that the economy is in a really tough spot because now with like- Well, it's not the economy. I think it's policymakers have run out of tools in the toolkit. No doubt about it. But you know, one thing that they've shown us that every single way, you know how you said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. They doubled the size of their balance sheet. They threw $4 trillion at this. And so the one thing I would say, whatever people think about us banning Russian oil right now, U.S. corporates and U.S. consumers, their balance sheets are in pretty good spot because of what we had just done during the pandemic, right? And so to me, I'm like, you got to do that. Yeah, but my 401k is not doing so great. So Daddy J Powell is going to need to add some super fuel right before. But he can't. The other thing that I just, again, want to be really clear about, midterm election, really important year, precarious year. It's done. I mean, I don't think it matters. The Dems are going to lose the House. They're going to lose the Senate. And that doesn't make me happy because I think the right has lost their fucking minds. I mean, to be honest with you. Everyone's lost their minds. I I don't think it's a right or a left thing. It's like everyone. Not really. I think it's a right thing. We went from four years of absolute insanity from a fucking lunatic waking up every morning, taking out his smartphone while he's taking a shit and just deciding to just fucking get everybody crazy. And so we don't have that, which is really good. Now we have Putin doing that on the other side. So the question then becomes, we have crazy inflation. And honestly, I really empathize because the people who pay the price for this, right? Inflation is a regressive tax. What's really sad and concerning is there are a lot of people, especially here in New York City, who are on fixed income, who are on some form of welfare or aid. And for them, surviving in this environment is... So let me ask you a question, though, because you say it's not right or left. Who is going to better take care of our most vulnerable citizens if they're in power? And it definitely is Democrats. I mean, it just is. It's neither, honestly. Really? Yeah, because both are really good at grift. There's a lot of grift. But what, what I'm saying is, is like they call it the welfare state. Okay, here's the problem, though, Dan. Democrats don't like rich people. They never said they liked poor people either. Democrats who aren't billionaires in the Senate don't like rich people. They never said they liked poor people. They just said they did. The campaign, the platform they campaign on is not, we're going to help poor people. It's literally the only narrative is we're going to punish people. Honestly, I think what we need in this country, and this is going to sound crazy, we need a new political party. I'm calling it the pumpkin patch party. If we have a new political party, people like Trump will be elected every election. I'm just telling you on a national scale, it'll be an absolute disaster. What we need to do is get rid of the electoral college and we have to let people just decide to choose who they you want to You know what we should for. do? We should turn America into a giant Dow. Let's do it. You and me, baby. Can we get Packy involved in this sort of thing? No. All right, listen, I think we've covered a lot here. This was an amazing conversation. I think you and I should start doing this more often, just turning on the mic. Well, let's see what the listeners say. Because you and I, I think we have good banter, but also you're not afraid to punch me, and I'm not afraid to no. punch you. It's good. I think you made that very apparent in, in early 2021. I was new to podcasting, and I had a lot of my friends who, they were new to listening to podcasts, and they're like, is that what goes on? And then they were like, she just kind of wipe the floor with you. That was your second episode of On the Tape, right? It really was. You were literally one of the first people we were like, we have to have Melton. That was really fun. But you called it Battle of the Boomers. So you kind of set me up. 
You did really good typecasting. We set you up because at the time, I think if you recall, the stock market was in this really weird period with all these meme stocks. And then meme coins were like the volume. Do you remember the volume that like Doge? Am I saying Doge? Have I been saying Doge wrong the whole time? No, it's Doge. It's Doge. Some people call it Doji or some shit. Doggy. Doggy. Doggy coin, yeah. Look, there's no right or wrong. That's the beautiful thing. I had a friend of mine last time you were on, and I think I called you the Deegan Princess, and he DM'd me, and he said it's Deejan or something. Deejan. Deejan. That's my handle is Dijon Princess. So if you ever see Dijon Princess, just know it. I get it. But like, who gives a shit about my pronunciation? I'm literally talking all day long. Okay. I'm going to miss say things. I'm just going to say that to you right now. Our content's been really fun. It's also been fun to banter. I learn every time I talk to you. Well, I learn. I mean, that's why when we were setting up a key computer, I said to you at the time, I really want you involved in this as much as we can get of you. And at the time, you're like, easy, buddy. And then, and now I'm like, I want you here every week. So hopefully you will come back. I know that you travel a bit. You've been working hard on many, many projects. You lead the charge over there at CoinShares. I saw you. I was on your CoinShares. Our investor day. relations yeah, call. Really, yeah. Yeah. It was really good. And you're really funny because you don't swear on those. You swear on this, but you were properly professional. I think I'm going to change. So I'm currently our chief strategy officer. I think I'm going to change my title to DGen in residence. I love that. <laughs> I want to be the first publicly listed company that has like a chief DGen or like a DGen in charge. Yeah. We need a, a new moniker for you. Oh, jeez. I did tell you all about my dick butt. That thing killed. I think the people on the internet really liked my new NFT. You're going to Gooch Island. If I get the invite, we'll see. You will. And you know what it takes to get to Gooch Island? Energy. All right. On that note, Meltem, thanks for being with me. IRL for OK Computer. You got me good. That was a nice snipe. <laughs> Talk to you later. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.